Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the passage we've uh, just been singing in verse form, Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and you'll find it on page 980, or if you're using the large print Bible, on page 1164. Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. Um, There were not many books in the house I grew up in, but my mother used to get a magazine uh, that some of the older ladies may have subscribed to called The People's Friend. Um, It was legitimate to read it because it was full of stories of new young ministers, single, coming to congregations where the choir then filled up with uh, those their mothers wanted to be young hopefuls. And the stories usually ended relatively well. Um, and uh, I still remember that the, the first few lines of each story, which I'm unashamed to say I read just for something to read, without any notion that this would be my future. Um, it would always say the story thus far. And the story thus far is that Paul is in prison, probably in Rome. Uh, The Philippian church have sent one of their, probably one of their elders or overseers to him with a gift. Um, He is taken sick either on the way or contracted something uh, in Rome itself, almost died. And Paul has decided that though perhaps the Philippians wanted him to send Timothy to them, that he's sending Epaphroditus back to them, and since he's sending Epaphroditus back, uh, he decides this is the time to uh, write the letter to the church in Philippi. And uh, there are some things about this letter that are, are very distinctive. It is, I think you could say, the friendliest of Paul's letters. Um, he regards this church Uh, as his joy and crown. Uh, They were not like the Galatians or the Corinthians. Um, I know you don't believe it, but some congregations give their ministers terrible hassle, and those congregations had done that for Paul. But the Philippians uh, were a congregation that he loved dearly, and so there's a slightly different tone to this letter. It's not so much a letter of instruction, although there is instruction in it, It's a letter of comradeship and and fellowship and friendship, and it's absolutely brimful of joy, and it has a style like our letters or emails to friends. Um, It's not in the form of Romans or Galatians or Ephesians or Colossians. It's, um, I really care for you, and I'm thankful to God for you. Um, And here is how things are going with me. And here are some of the things that I've heard about you. Some things concern me. 
uh, other ways in which I want to encourage you uh, before he gets right to the end and says, oh, by the way, I'm tremendously grateful for the gift that you sent to me. And Philippi was a Roman colony, which meant that its citizens were regarded as Roman citizens, and its lifestyle uh, was patterned after the lifestyle of uh, a Roman-governed colony. And it's interesting that uh, when Paul writes to them, he says, now, what you need to remember is that even if you are citizens, regarded as citizens of Rome, your real citizenship is in heaven where Jesus Christ is. And this is the point of his greeting to them in verse 1, that they are the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So he begins letter as he begins most of his letters with a, a fairly regular word of introduction which he Christianizes and a word of expressing appreciation for them, which is always a good thing to do in uh, a letter. Some of you have never written a letter except in high school, maybe. Good thing to do in an email as well. It's become a distinctly Christian thing to do, to stop and think, why am I so thankful for the person to whom I'm writing? Uh, it, it may be the first time anyone has ever said that to them. And Paul elongates the customary thanksgiving. Now, that's the story thus far, so let's read Philippians 1, 1 through 11. And I'm not counting that as sermon time. <laughs> Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I think if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably had the kind of experience uh, that is a kind of flashback for me reading this passage during the week, uh, going home from my first term at university in the good old days when there were terms rather than semesters, and feeling that I had really come on as a, 
a Christian of just a few years. I'd really come on uh, in what we used to call my prayer life. And then I went to a meeting in Glasgow, my hometown, on a Saturday night, and the minister who led the service began to pray, and I felt my heart sink. Um, I was humbled, if not actually humiliated, by the thought that I had felt I had advanced somewhat in prayer. And by the end of this man's prayer, I was feeling I, I know almost nothing about real prayer. And I think when we read a passage like Philippians 1 or the introductions to several of Paul's letters where he tells us what he is praying for, for the congregation to which he's writing, it's very easy for your heart to sink. I don't think I've heard many prayers in church prayer meetings that have given expression to the burden of Paul's prayer here in Philippians. But Paul is not sharing his prayer burden for the Philippians with the Philippians to humiliate them, as though to say, have you ever prayed like this? Uh, but to encourage them. And what strikes me about this particular prayer here is that the energy that Paul has to pray for the Philippians in the way he does in the last few verses of this section actually comes not from his, quotes, prayer life, but from somewhere else. And so what I want us to try and think about in these verses that are worthy of a month of sermons, a month of sermons that has five Sundays in it, I want us to think simply about two things. The first is how he prays for them, and the second is what he prays for them. And when we ask the question, Paul, how do you pray for them? There are many answers to that question in these verses. The first is that he prays for them regularly. The second is that he prays for them all. It's a very telling thing because it's pretty clear that there were people in this congregation who were finding each other difficult. And often the reason we find others particularly difficult is because we've either never prayed for them or we've stopped praying for them. And he wants to embrace them. Um, in a sense, he is, he is setting himself up as a model. He's conscious that's Christ's purpose in his life, to be a model as he embraces all of them. And that includes Yodia and Suntike, as he refers to them later on, who seem to have fallen out with one another. So he prays for all of them, and he, he does that regularly. Um, he's only been with them less than a handful of times, but he has been the church planter, and he still sees himself, in a sense, as having apostolic pastoral responsibility for them. But then I think you'll notice that his prayer is marked by three characteristics. The first is, he says, he prays for them joyfully. Uh, you'll notice how he says this, in every prayer of mine for you all, I make my prayer 
with joy. Um, that's challenging, but it's also profoundly instructive, isn't it? Uh, I think many of us find our, our intercession very easily becomes joyless. So what is it about Paul's praying that fills him with joy as he prays for the Philippians? Well, it's a piece of homework. You could run through Philippians this afternoon, and you'll notice that joy and rejoicing are words that appear again and again. Perhaps the, the word group appears a dozen times in this letter. It's a letter that is brimful of joy. And the reason he prays for them with joy is because there is something in the Philippian congregation that has given him joy. Joy is one of those words um, a little like uh, what Augustine said when he was asked what time was. And he said, I'm sure I knew what it was until, actually until you asked me. And we all know what joy is, but when you're asked to define it, what is what is this joy of which Paul speaks? It becomes a bit more difficult, doesn't it? it it's not happiness, is it? it? It wouldn't really be appropriate to, to re-translate Paul's use of joy language just to speak about happiness. No, joy for Paul is a sense of, of satisfaction in something he has seen happen. And in this case, what gives him that sense of satisfaction, that sense of joy? And think about the first question and answer of the shorter catechism. We're made to, to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. Not just saying God wants you to be happy. It, it's saying that, that you find your satisfaction, your contentment, sense of fulfillment in God. And Paul indicates here to the Philippians that this is how he feels about them. He sees that God has done something in them that fills him with a sense of satisfaction, of, of uh, completeness. He'd given himself to them, and he really couldn't have joy in them without seeing the, the fruit of his self-giving to them. Um, it's a very characteristic pastoral reality, isn't it? The elders in the church know that. David referred the other Sunday to ministers he's spoken about who clearly have lost any joy they ever had in the congregation they serve, and part of the reason for that may lie in them, but probably also part of the reason lies in the congregation they serve, that they are no longer giving him joy because the fruit of his ministry is not being seen in their lives. And this is something that made Paul pray for the Philippians with joy. Uh, there was a sense of, not that they were perfect or that he was perfect. He makes that clear later on in the letter. But that it was evident that God had done something 
in them. And he puts that this way. He says, you know, what gives me joy is your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That sense of, of binding with them. And that was true, wasn't it? Um, Luke tells the story in Acts chapter 16. And it's told very, very powerfully. Three people seem to be converted, and two of them with their families. And the two of them who have families, so there's, you, there, there's a lady who's a, a businesswoman, there's a, a girl who's abused by evil men, there's the jailer. And the whole narrative is bookended by the conversion of, of Lydia so gently the Lord opens her heart, and then the conversion of the jailer in the context of an earthquake. But both stories end the same way. In both cases, Lydia and the jailer took Paul and his friends into their house because they had taken them into their hearts. And you've got this beautiful, simple, applicable, anywhere and everywhere illustration of the reason why the Apostle Paul finds joy in the Corinthians, because of their partnership, their fellowship, their sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. So that was especially sweet. That was like, like oil making it easy for the Apostle Paul to lift his spirit to God and to intercede for them with thanksgiving. So he prays for them joyfully. And then you'll notice he also prays for them confidently in verses 6 and 7. I'm sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's confidence in, in their security in Christ. Um, yes, there will be challenges to them to persevere, but he has this overwhelming conviction that what began among them in Philippi when he was brought there by the Holy Spirit was a work of God, and that that work of God would be completed. Now, how could we be so sure about it? Well, obviously, he could be sure about it because, actually, he'd already written his letter to the Romans when he wrote Philippians, and he had written that those God predestines, he calls, and those he calls, he justifies, and those he justifies, he glorifies. So his theology taught him God finishes the work that he really begins. And if he really begins it, he will complete it. He leaves nothing unfinished. And so he has this conviction, an, an intellectual conviction, that God will complete his work in them. Remember uh, Augustus, top ladies, great hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone when he, he encourages us to sing about those who are now in heaven. And he says this, more happy 
but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. And why is that? Well, the answer is because the glorified spirits in heaven are no more justified before the face of God than the newest Christian believer. That justification that God gives to us in Christ, in the gospel, is His judgment of the last day brought forwards into the present day to secure us forever. But there's another reason why Paul seems to hold this conviction. You'll notice he goes on to say, it's right for me to feel this way about you all, not just because that's the teaching of the gospel, but because I think he understands that the work that God began in them, he actually first began in Paul and his companions. In one of the most, I think, instructive passages in the Acts of the Apostles, just before Paul has a a vision in the night, and in that vision a man from Macedonia is saying to him, come over here to help us. We're all familiar with that, but perhaps not so familiar with the verses that precede it. The apostles went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So what precedes that vision is Paul trying to do this, trying to do that. What are we to do? And then when he arrives in Philippi and the Lord opens Lydia's heart and brings this slave girl deliverance and breaks into the Philippian jail, he must have realized where this trajectory was headed, why these obstacles were in the way, and why he could be so convinced that this was really a work of God because he was convinced this was a work of God that had already begun in his life and God's purposes for him. This is a marvelous thing to think about your life, isn't it? In these terms, that every obstacle that is providentially put in the way means that one day you're able to look back and think, If it weren't for that, it wouldn't be this, this to which God has brought me. So, among other things, the apostle, as he thanks the Lord for the Philippians, is also teaching us this lesson that sometimes God seems to put us in cul-de-sacs until the traffic of His providential purposes has caught up with where He wants us to be. So there was a dual conviction in Paul's heart. Usually there is this kind of dual conviction in Paul's heart, that he had seen his theology at work as God had worked through him and had worked into the lives of others. And this is the reason why he prays so confidently. So he prays joyfully, he prays confidently, Um, but I think right at the heart of his prayer here is 
the way in which he prays affectionately. It looks from what he says that it's his affection for them that energizes his care and his intercession for them. Yes, he's, he says, it's right for me, the English Standard Version has, it's right for me to feel this way. The, the verb really is to think this way, but obviously the translators felt that thinking here was not just cerebral. It was kind of whole person. It's right for me to have this attitude, this disposition. And why is it right for him? Because he says, I hold you in my heart, for you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, for God is my witness. Maybe I can put it this way to kind of arrest us. This is so big for the Apostle Paul, it makes him swear. This is an oath he's taking. God is my witness. This is like putting his hand on the big coronation Bible and saying, as God is my witness. What lies behind all this is the affection that I have for you. Um, I don't think that can be underlined nearly sufficiently, that what God creates in believers, what He seeks in believers, what transforms believers' relationships with each other, what transforms their ministry to each other, not least in intercession, is our affections. Um, we frequently, we who teach frequently in this tremendously subjectivistic age, are urging Christians to think. But the Bible never encourages us to think without encouraging us also to feel. And I think one of the most remarkable things that you are bound to have noticed in the Apostle Paul is that when he was the unconverted Saul of Tarsus, he must have been the most tightly wound ball in Jerusalem tensed, driven, absolutely overwhelmed with deep convictions. And one of the things that you see happening to him during the course of his life is that that ball, that tight ball, begins to be unwound and unwound and unwound and unwound and unwound until there's a kind of balance created between his, his thinking that has been transformed and clarified by the gospel and his affections that have been liberated and purified and developed by the gospel. So he has those costly affections of pain and grief in relationship to others, and he has these delightful affections of joy, happiness, fulfillment in others. And at the end of the day, you know, we are such unified creatures in all the disintegration that takes place in our being unified creatures 
but it's actually at the end of the day the affections God needs to touch if our lives are to be transformed. Thinking clearly will not do it. And this, it seems to me, uh, we could go on and on about this. You know we can go on and on about these things. Um, you run through Paul and you realize that's what the gospel did to him. And it's also our need that the gospel do this to us because this, this is what drives the bond of the partnership, the fellowship, the ministry Paul is speaking about here. It's actually affection. You know, it strikes me there is a kind of teaching around um, in the atmosphere of our evangelical subculture that um, what, you, what you need in order to be able to minister is the gift and the desire. But you know, that's not true. And one of the dangers of that thinking is that we begin to think, I have this gift and therefore, um, and I've seen this in people, I've heard it from people. How is the church going to use my gift? And that is usually an indication of a deficit of affection. Because the real issue is not, how is the church going to use my gift? The real issue is, do you have a heart to serve the church wherever you see there is a need? Years ago, I was, I was at a wedding reception. I cannot remember anything about the wedding or what we ate at the reception. I remember only two things. One was I was sitting beside one of my longest standing friends, friend from, from my teenage years, older friend, wiser friend who'd been a great blessing to me, is a great blessing to me. And one of the waiting staff passed the table, and she tripped, and the whole tray was like all banging all over the place, and everybody staring. And I turned to my friend. And after all, I was a theologian, a minister. And I said, somebody should help that girl. He just looked me in the eye and he said one word with a question mark at the end. Well, so I did. Not very well, but I did. Now you see, that's, that's the kind of thing Paul is driving at. Not God has given me these gifts to which I think somebody should have the courage to say, you're not actually the judge of that. The judge that God has given you these gifts is that the people of God appreciate the way you serve them. And that's first and foremost, not a matter of the level of your gift. That will take care of itself in a healthy church. It's the matter of affection. And that's that's what the gospel changes. Our, don't you find that it changes our affection? It's not, it's not something that you work up. It's, 
it's, it's the transforming power of God's grace that Paul is speaking about. You are partakers with me of grace. And where does the affection come out? Both in my imprisonment, they're concerned for him. They, they care about him. God willing, we'll find out more about that next week. And on his part, I swear to you that I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So he prays for them joyfully. He prays for them confidently. He prays for them affectionately. Um, and that just leaves us to answer the question, well, how does he pray for them? And I want to try and do that much more briefly. He prays for them, he says, in these simple ways. Um, my friend Derek Thomas often speaks about prayer meetings that have become organ recitals not the kind of organ recital that Drew would give, but, you know, it's Mrs. Jones' leg and it's Mr. Smith's ear. And those are <laughs> legs and ears are really important to the Lord. Um, but behind all that, there's something about Paul's prayer here that helps us to pray, that focuses what we need to pray for one another. It's a kind of outline, I'm sure, like the Lord's Prayer. He went down into this as he prayed for the Philippians. He couldn't be praying these couple of verses day after day after day. I'm sure he enlarged on them to the Lord. But what did he, what did he sense they really needed? Well, it's interesting in this context of affection, isn't it, that the first thing is he prays that they will have love that abounds more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And that discernment will be a discerning of what is excellent. Uh, it's one thing to discern the good from the bad. That's very basic. But to be able to, to discern the good from the best and to commit yourself to the best, that's what the Apostle Paul is praying for here. And maybe you're like me, your eye goes to knowledge and discernment, but that's not what he's praying for. He's praying that that knowledge and that discernment will mutually be servants of love. Servants of love. I mean, looking back on my life, I think when I was a younger Christian, knowledge and discernment. Pff, need knowledge and discernment. More study, more into the Word. And maybe was blind to the fact that knowledge and discernment are actually servants of something. Servants of love. Um, Paul says, doesn't he, knowledge can puff you up. And it does. But knowledge with discernment, what does that mean? Knowledge with discernment is knowing the ways in which you can love. And he's praying for that. It'd be such an unusual thing, wouldn't it, in a community today to have knowledge with discernment and love. It, it, people who, who came among us might not be able to put their finger on what it was, but they would see that it was, this was a different kind of community altogether. And it's so important 
I think looking back, I've been minister of two churches that I used to hear people say, now you're, you're a minister in a teaching church. And to be honest, I always cringed inwardly when people said that. And it made me ask this question, well, we surely exist to be a church where the Word of God is taught, but how, how do we become a teaching church that is a loving church? For the goal of the teaching, as Paul says to Timothy, the, the goal of our charge is this is what the teaching of the Word has in view. The goal of our charge is love that issues from a good conscience. And you can't be in this church very long without noticing that uh, our minister has what a psychiatrist might call a kind of theological tick. And I've not been in the church all that long, as you know, or most of you know, but I've, I've noticed this tick. You know, the kind of thing you, you go to the counselor and he says, how would you get on with your, your, your parents? And you, fine, absolutely fine. That's a tick. Now, how does he characteristically refer to this church? Does he refer to it chiefly as the body of Christ, or the temple of God, or the bride of Christ? No, he refers to it as the church family. Now, that actually is the basic New Testament picture of the church. It's not these other pictures, and it's not actually a picture. If we share the same Heavenly Father, then we belong to the family. The body is a picture. The bride is a picture. The temple is a picture. The family is what we are. And what is it about family? Family is where you learn, where you are loved, and where you love. And Paul prayed for the Philippians with joy because, yeah, there were difficulties and challenges and there would be more, but um, this was true. They were a family where the children were learning and where all the family were growing as he prayed in knowledge and discernment in order that their love might abound. And the fruit of that would be that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, to the glory and praise of God. That's his ultimate goal. Oh, Heavenly Father, Help them to glorify you, because that's the way they will enjoy you forever. And that's what I want most of all. That's actually what I'm confident about, that the good work you began in them, you'll bring to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. The work that your goodness began, the arm of your strength will complete. The saints in glory may be more happy, but they're not more secure but they may be more loving. And that's what I'm praying that we will be, he says, 
to these dear friends, the Philippians. Well, may that be true also of our church family here at Trinity. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of such kindness and tenderness, God of such affection towards us yourself. Uh, You love us as a father loves his children. Uh, you, You have a heart that says, how can I give them up? even when we go astray. And we thank you that you have called us into the family of Jesus Christ and into the branch of the family here at Trinity. And we, we pray that the lineaments of this prayer and these affections of the Apostle Paul may be reduplicated among us. Lord, we are so differently wound, and some of us by nature find it easier to express our gratitude and to express affection. We, we pray that we may have both of these that, in a way that goes beyond words, but is also genuinely expressed among us. And we pray that these petitions of the Apostle Paul and the Spirit uh, that pervaded them may also be characteristic of the way in which we pray together and live together. And we ask this uh, as though we were one. In Jesus' name, amen.